0: or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore M-O-V number two L-I-V. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Moving to Live podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us some feedback on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you listen to us on. If you have an idea for an interview, Drop us a message through any of our social media channels. We're always looking for interesting people in the movement field who understand that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Welcome back to another edition of the Moving to Live podcast. We are a podcast about movement and movement opportunities. We interview individuals who are involved in different aspects of the movement profession, all with the goal to break down movement silos. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we firmly believe that movement should be treated as a lifestyle, not just an activity. Today, we've got a guest that we interviewed a little bit over two years ago who really had an interesting story about how he went from a failed baseball player (laughs) to a personal trainer, to a director of education at a national organization, to a college professor. And I think one of the things that people often forget when they see that somebody's a college professor is it's not typically a nine-to-five job. It's not something that you just teach the two or three classes that you're assigned to teach. It often involves more than that. And there's often a variety of reasons why people who are in the teaching profession switch and even move halfway across the country. Today, we're with Dr. Jay Dawes, who is now at Oklahoma State University. When we talked to him a little bit over two years ago, he was at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And I'm especially appreciative that Jay is talking to us because I know that at 12 midnight uh, tonight, or last night, actually, he was at work collecting data and we are at... uh, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so I suspect we've got about 35 or 40 minutes before Dr. Dawes falls asleep. Jay, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live once again.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. And rather than a failed baseball player, I'd prefer to be called aggressively mediocre.
0: So (laughs) Aggressively, and actually I'm looking at Dr. Dawes, Uh, he's on Zoom camera and he's got his trophies behind him on his uh, office wall (laughs) at Oklahoma State.
1: (laughs) There's so many. They deserve their own wall. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I think uh, one of the things that I always like to ask people when I interview them for moving to live, whether it's the first time or whether it's the second time is you're stuck in an elevator. You've got your Oklahoma State uh, T-shirt on and somebody says, you know, so what do you do there? And what's your boilerplate elevator speech? I'm Dr. Jay Dawes and I take it from there.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's always tough to summarize it, but in a nutshell, uh, I'm an assistant professor of exercise uh, or applied exercise science uh, with a primary emphasis in research on human performance optimization for the tactical athlete. So, long story short, what that means is. Um, Here at Oklahoma State, uh, I spend about 50% of my time uh, in a teaching role. So I teach two courses, one undergraduate, one graduate. Um, I mentor a handful of PhD as well as master's level students and try to kind of help guide them through the research process and um, basically help them kind of achieve what their academic goals are. And uh, then in addition to that. Forty percent of my job is doing research um, in a variety of different areas and about 10 percent of my time is spent doing service. Um, And that service um, is really a pretty broad umbrella for a whole variety of things as far as, um, you know, giving back basically to our our department here at the university, uh, the university as a whole, the, the college,
0: as well as the community. And I know one of the questions I want to get out of the way because I think it's interesting. Very often, when you see articles about college professors, they're like, You just said I teach two classes. uh, And they say, Oh, well, you know, you show up uh, (laughs) twice a week. You know, you show up twice a week and maybe spend 10 minutes beforehand prepping. But that's not exactly true. We'll get a a little bit more into the teaching. I know that we had to reschedule this because you said, Look, I don't want to do it at seven o'clock in the morning because I'm working at midnight. Why were you working at midnight when that's other than people who do shift work, not something that you commonly think of when you talk about college professors or even strength coaches? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, in reality, the people that I do a lot of my research with are people that work shifts. So um, you know, in order to, you know, try and help serve them as best I can and, and accommodate their schedules. You know, sometimes you, you have unorthodox hours that you have to, to accommodate. And, uh, you know, fortunately, it's one of those things where I actually do genuinely love my job. And, you know, going in and, you know, doing testing from midnight till 2.30 a.m. is actually a joy, believe it or not, and not something that is something that I actually dread doing. Um, and, and like I said, you know, when it's all said and done. It's kind of a cool story because not too many people, people do you know, going at midnight and, and do research with uh, cool people and doing cool things. So,
0: <laughs> and I know you said you're an associate, or excuse me, an assistant professor. You've yeah, got. I was an associate professor, but now, now I'm an assistant again. So, and that's a nice way to segue. You were at a different institution, and a lot of times you think somebody gets a tenure track job and they say, "Okay, I'm set here for life." And you yeah. were at a, a different institution. You were tenured. You were an associate professor, which is kind of the middle level, assistant associate, full professor, and from all aspects, you know, had a pretty sweet gig, and you made a decision to pack up your family and move them a couple of states, not halfway across the country, but a couple of states away to Oklahoma State University. You know, how did, how did that come about, and what was the decision that uh, brought that on?
1: Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where this, the position that I'm in now is, was my dream job 20 years ago, as far as from an academic perspective. Um, it was one of those positions that I I wanted it, but I never thought I would have the opportunity to to get it. And so, uh, you know, a couple years ago, um, I was actually approached by a couple people in the department who uh, were my mentors. And they said, Hey, you know, we, we have a position open, we'd really like you to apply. And, uh, you know, at at that point in time, you know, I was an associate professor, you know, full tenured position, and, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to you know, think about weighing that out and walking away from it. But quite honestly, again, with the people that are here, um, the team that we have and, you know, the opportunities that Oklahoma state provides it was one of those things where, you know, I always would, I would have always regretted if I hadn't made the jump and, you know, even taking a step back as far as rank is well worth the opportunity that's here and getting to work with the team. That's just a phenomenal group of people. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things we're coming into work every day, working with a team like this. It's, you know, it's a true collaborative environment. You know, everybody's rooting and pulling for one another. And uh, it's just been fantastic. And, you know, there is something to be said for uh, people from Oklahoma. Um, you know, it, they're just good people here. Uh, I say that being in Oklahoma, so I'm obviously a little bit biased. But
0: <laughs> and I think what you also haven't said, you're at Oklahoma State now, and that's where you did your undergrad also, correct?
1: Um, no, I did not. But I did my master's and my Ph.D., so, you know, I, I probably am, you know, one of those few professors, I mean, I, I would venture say in the top one, 2% who actually get go, get to go back to their alma mater and, and teach. So, you know, as far as a university goes, it's hard to imagine me being more invested um, than I could possibly be here. So,
0: And I know one of the other things that people often think about, you know, as much as we'd like it to be, college professors aren't at the upper echelon of what they bring in in money. And I know from talking with you when you were thinking about making the move, one of the things that kind of made us attractive is the opportunity for your kids to potentially go to Oklahoma state also.
1: Yeah. You know, that, that was one of the major benefits is, you know, that there is a tuition benefit here. So, you know, that, that will certainly help out financially in the long run. And, um, you know, also it's gave me some favor with my father-in-law cause his alma mater was Oklahoma state as well. So now that I've pretty much guaranteed him three grandchildren that will graduate from Oklahoma state, uh he
0: he's, you know,
1: give me a little bit extra favor on that. So
0: <laughs> And of course I know as somebody who went to Auburn University where Auburn and Alabama were bitter rivals, my question would be, what happens if one of your kids figures out a way that they want to go to Oklahoma?
1: <laughs> well, as I've said before, they can go wherever they want, but their money's going to Oklahoma State, so that's fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're talking with Dr. Jay Dawes, who's at Oklahoma State. You mentioned at the beginning of the interview that uh, your three main areas of responsibility are teaching research and service. And I think a lot of times, people think of college professors, they think that either they don't do any teaching at all and they do all research, or they do all research and they hire adjuncts or uh, temporary faculty to do the teaching. But what's really never talked about a whole lot is the service. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more because you've been at two different institutions. You know What exactly, for you specifically, constitutes a service. And I think one of the things that's important for listeners, if they're thinking about going into academia or they don't understand it is you don't get additional money for this. This is part of your responsibility. And it's one of those things, if it's anything like the positions that I've been at and currently I'm at, it's kind of a gray area. You almost have to, in some instances, use your imagination and not in a negative way, but sell it or explain to people who maybe don't understand what your expertise is. Look, this is what I'm doing and it counts as service.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, service is one of those, you know, areas that that does tend to be a little bit fuzzy at times, depending on kind of what your uh, areas of expertise are. You know, I think when you look at service from a university perspective, the things are going to be more um, mainstream would be, you know, doing uh, service on different committees within the university at the, uh, you know, university, the college and the department level. And, And those are ones that are a little bit easier to, um, uh, kind of comprehend and and get people's head wrapped around, you know, with what I do in particular, um, you know, I spent majority of my career as a, as a practitioner and and I still coach even to this day. And for me, like part of what I do is help provide guidance and, um, act as a resource for different, you know, organizations, agencies, strength coaches, and and things of that nature to help guide and and steer best practice and, and really work with them to, to help make sure that they're getting their, um, you know, either either first responders, military personnel, or athletes, the best possible programs and services that they can um, can give. So, you know, that, that gets a little bit, um, again, challenging as far as trying to like quantify that because, you know, a lot of times it's not something where you're, you know, when, when I pick up the phone and I talk to somebody, I don't start the timer. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and there's a lot of projects that, you know, we, we do, um, you know, collaborate with other groups that, you know, they don't make it to a CV. They don't make it to, you know, a line item on, you know, a, a, you know, development plan or anything of that nature. It's just kind of what you do as part of, you know, the responsibility you have as far as, um, you know, being in the position that you're in. So, you know, it, you know I guess, you know, to answer your question, I, honestly, even in my answer is pretty vague. Um, but I give you, give you a couple other for instances, like um, there's several law enforcement agencies that I've worked with in the last year that have been looking for guidance as far as developing, um, you know, occupational tests and validations, looking at injury prediction for their cadets, um, things of that nature, and and really just trying to provide information to them based off the research that we've done and, you know, uh, different um, people that we've worked with to kind of help guide them and, and give them some advice as far as how to proceed with their operations.
0: And I know the other area that you're heavily involved in is in research with tactical. And I think this is a great opportunity to get some information out there. A lot of times when people hear the term tactical, they think, oh, you know, special forces in the military, Um, and they don't really think all of the other things that are involved with that. So in your experience and in your expertise, you know, if you could explain to the listeners, you know, when you hear tactical, you should think more than just, uh, you know, Army Rangers, Navy SEALs talk a little bit about what uh, the tactical individuals that you work with are.
1: Yeah. And and really that's the thing is like, when you look at, look at first responders, I mean, that really goes from, you know, everybody who's, you know, elite special forces from, you know, Navy SEALs to people who are, you know, dispatchers who are, you know, kind of cyber warriors, you know, so individuals who are doing a lot of their work behind a computer and, you know, trying to help keep, you know, the, the country and, you know, our community safe as well. So, there's, there's really a wide range of individuals when you look at that tactical space. And I think you know, a lot of times you know, we tend to gravitate toward um, you know, the special teams and you know, the you know, people that are kind of at the uh, upper echelons as far as from a performance standpoint in that area because you know, we know they're in high-risk situations. We know that they're going to be doing things that are highly physically demanding. But in a lot of cases, you know, the, the people who are behind the scenes who are helping support those individuals um, also need those services as well. And, you know, we, we've kind of talked about the kinetic versus the cyber warrior, where, you know, you have people who are highly um, driven by movement and have to do that. And then we have other people who, you know, again, don't move very much as part of their job. But nonetheless, it supports the, the entire effort. So, you know, trying to improve, you know, health, fitness and performance for that wide gamut of individuals really um, creates a lot of challenges because there's a lot of unique needs. Um, you know, m- many times, you know, when you look at, working with athletes in particular, you know, you look at a group for the most part, it's relatively homogenous. I mean, you know, you can go in and, and for the most part say, you know, probably everybody's got a decent amount of power and strength and speed and agility and things of that nature. And certainly you know, you've got your outliers one way or the other, but you walk into a law enforcement agency, or you know, even a firehouse. I mean, it, I, I've joked before; is like a lot of times, it's like walking into a department store. Is like you get a pretty good cross section of the, the population, where we have people who are amazingly fit and people who, you know, got some things to work on. And uh, you know, trying to create programs that are going to meet the needs of those uh, diverse individuals is is a challenge for a lot of people, especially. You know, the individuals that are first responders who have been tasked to help provide those services to their um, colleagues.
0: And I know one of the things that just occurred to me as you said this, you mentioned cyber warriors. I know there's a growing area of people in the fitness performance world, for lack of a better term, who are working with e athletes or athletes. Individuals who are professionals who play video games, huh, right. and they and you know on the one hand you laugh and say well that's a bunch of nerds or geeks sit- sitting behind a computer, but on the other hand if you consider they're doing repetitive tasks, very small motions, they have to be alert medically or excuse me mentally not medically, you know there's there's the uh, the requirement for them to. If they're morbidly obese or they have breathing problems, that can affect their performance. Have you taken any of that information or looked at any of that for working with uh, the tactical individuals who maybe are less active than some of the more active ones, the ones who are more cyber-oriented? I'm so sorry, man. Let me me clarify the question. So when you
1: say that, like working with them as far as like from what perspective?
0: Well, there's a there's a small but growing body of research uh, and applied information on working with e athletes or people who play video games professionally. Have you looked at any of that information and possibly thought about how that could kind of piggyback or go over to the more general work that you do with your tactical athletes? Yeah, probably not so specific as the e athletes, but you know what we have looked at
1: is you know some of the stuff that's done with um, like warfighters and things of that nature. So people. You know, who maybe have to sit in a cockpit for, you know, an extended period of time and have to have, you know, razor sharp reaction time and, you know, uh, perceptual and decision making skills and things of that nature. Um, so we do look at that. Uh, most of the people that I work with, it's um, there's not necessarily as large a sense of urgency because I don't necessarily work with anybody who's in, in that space that uh, would be considered like your cyber warriors. Um, but the big thing that we really try and focus on with them is, you know, the, the stress of the job. Um, and, and looking at you know what what is the job doing to you? So you know, as we know now, you know sitting is really not uh, the best thing for long-term health and fitness. and you know they spend a large majority of their time sitting in a chair. Um, so a lot of times what we try and do is approach their training and their programming by you know trying to undo what the job is doing to them. Um, and a lot of times it's really it, it's the the mental and emotional trauma that's uh, caused by the job because you know unfortunately, you know these these are great people who are you know trying to help keep you know us safe, but they have to look at horrible things all day long and they have to deal with you know people who you know aren't always the nicest people and, and when you look at society and, and unfortunately that uh, that has a, a downstream effect as far as overall you know health and wellness and attitude and and things of that nature. So really what we're trying to do is from a mental and emotional standpoint really combat you know, some of the negative consequences that the job has, not only from a physical standpoint, but also the mental emotional standpoint as well.
0: And what are some ways in a, in a practical setting that you, you address and provide them with tools to deal with the mental and emotional stress that occurs from the job? Yeah,
1: I mean, one of the things I mean, and, and it sounds, you know, trite, and, and we all probably know this, but exercise is a fantastic way to, uh, to help ameliorate some of those stresses. And, you know, basically to, to switch focus as well from, you know, the um, the things that they're having to work on on a daily basis that may be, you know, again, a little bit more, you know, n- not quite as pleasant. Um, some of the things we've actually looked into is like some work that's done with trauma. Um, there's been some pretty good evidence that shows, you know, uh, you know, I know in the past, you know, both of us have done a fair amount of running. Um, but there's actually a lot of evidence now that shows that doing things like maybe trail running, um, or things that. Um, you know, cause you to have to switch your attentional focus between different objects, you know, like, like fall avoidance and things of that nature might actually be more beneficial um, from a uh, brain stimulation standpoint as well as a stress standpoint than just like grinding out miles on a treadmill or, you know, elliptical or, or whatever it may be. So, you know, trying to integrate some of those things in where, you know, we, we can kind of switch the focus off of just you know, grinding out mileage and grinding out. Uh, you know, a certain duration of time to things that keep them mentally active and kind of switch their focus from um, those internal thoughts that, you know, may, you know, maybe carry over from work to things that are a little bit more, you know, performance and maybe even kind of play oriented as well, you know, trying to, you know, meet different challenges and things like that and and different workouts and so on and so forth.
0: And what's been the feedback from the uh, individuals that you've worked with doing this for the, maybe the ones who have that grind mentality, you know, if I run more miles, it's better. Or if I spend more days in the weight room and bench press more days and that's better. And and the idea of what you're describing is physical play is kind of like, well, but that doesn't make sense. How do they respond?
1: Uh, So I I
0: think the thing about it is, is,
1: you know, it's, you know, as I said before, you've got all kinds of people and it's got to match their style. So with those folks, we try to find things that are going to be physically challenging. That's going to kind of put the tick in the box for them in that way um, versus trying to force them into a mold that doesn't fit them. Um, like to, to give you an example, like, you know, for the people that tend to be like more grinder type people, we do things that are, um, they're called complexes where you may do a series of three to four exercises with a dumbbell. They're all done together in a row and you try to do like three to four rounds of that without ever putting a barbell or a dumbbell down. Um, So that, that's very, you know, from an endurance standpoint, it's really, really challenging. And people who tend to be grinders really do enjoy that type of stuff. You know, other people have, want nothing to do with that whatsoever. You know, so some people, you know, if I were to tell them that, hey, this is what you need to do, they would literally never talk to me again, you know? So really what it is, it's... I think the big challenge is like you actually have to sit down and know the people and talk to them and find out what are your wants? What are your needs? What will you do? What won't you do? Cause it's got to fit their personality. It's got to fit their style and it's not a one size fits all approach, which quite honestly, from a, a research perspective is one of the massive challenges that I have as far as trying to do research studies, um, within these populations, because you know, a lot of times when we work with athletics or, um, you know, different groups. We'll give you, you know, here, here's your set program. You're going to do this. We'll make some modifications and tweaks here or there. But, you know, as I said before, you know, we've got some people like literally that were professional athletes that are in this space and others who have never done anything really active at all uh, outside of their job. And we're trying to find things that are get them motivated and excited about working out. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not, you know, a one size fits all approach just does not work. Um, so subsequently, from a research perspective, that that isn't super clean. <laughs> but I, I think that's the challenge is you know, like trying to be in that space and trying to give them what they need is really trying to um, adjust it based off what their goals are. And making sure that, that you know, it, it fits fits what they want and not necessarily what I'm trying to do just to get a research study published.
0: I'm curious with the individuals that you work with, with their job responsibilities. Is it a requirement that they pass a specific fitness test, or does it depend uh, from what, one organization to another? What you work with? Yeah, it widely varies. So, it, depending
1: on the organization, um, you know, a lot of organizations will have set fitness standards that they utilize. I will say this: the overwhelming majority do not. Um, one of the major reasons for that is, you know, trying to develop a validated fitness standard is incredibly difficult. Um, And, and, you know, subsequently, there's a lot of lawsuits that surround that area uh, as far as, you know, know, what is the minimum level of physical requirement that's necessary to actually do a job, you know, efficiently and effectively. And, And, you know, there's a lot of these, you know, a lot of agencies will set fitness standards and get taken to court and try and defend it. And honestly, it's a very, very hard number to defend unless you've done you know, a, a true validation study with it. And even in that case, is it still a challenge? So, you know, you, you couple that along with, um, you know, a lot of things related to uh, union type um, activity and things of that nature. A lot of people just choose not to incorporate um, fitness tests that are based off punitive measures. So, you know, a lot of agencies will have voluntary fitness programs that may have some like aspirational standards. Um, but very few now um, do actually have ones that's a hard, you know, you know, pass fail type standard.
0: I can imagine that there are some individuals that you work with that it's, you know, they just uh, take to it like a duck on water. It's like finally somebody who can give me more information and explain, you know, why, why is it that I can't bench press three days in a row or why can't I run, you know, 15 miles after work all five days of the work week. Hmm. But then you probably have, and and your job with them is probably to downregulate it or tell them that, you know, less is more, across all aspects, but then you probably, if it's anything like people who work in the wellness arena, you have groups of people, hopefully relatively small, who, you know, you come in and you say, you know, I'm Dr. Dawes or I'm Jay. I'm here to help you with the, improve the, uh, the fitness. And they look at you and say, ain't going to do it. Don't have time. Not going to do it unless you pay me. How do um, you approach, how do you approach those individuals when you're kind of brought in and they look at you and say, yeah, it's just not going to happen.
1: I, I, honestly, I, it's one of those things where, you know, they're human beings and obviously I'm invested in them. And you know, if they ever need my help, I'm there for them to help them. But the, the reality is like they're grown men and women. So they've got a choice. And the thing about exercise, like it's gotta be a personal decision. So it's one of those things where I just love them. was like, Hey, I'm a resource. I'm here. I'm available. If you ever want to talk about this, that's great. If not, I mean, if, if you want to talk about your favorite, baseball team or football team I'm happy to do that too but I mean a lot of it is relationship driven I think you know it's it's one of those things where a lot of times when I come in I think there's this perception like oh great here's gonna be this guy that's gonna force exercise down our throat and you know try and you know uh, make us do x y z that we don't want to do and and that's really not the case I mean it's it's one of those things where I'm there to help um if I'm able to do that and they would like me to do that I'm, I'm all in and, you know, there's going to be a handful of people that, I mean, the top 20% probably don't need me anyway because they probably got it pretty dialed in. It may be a few like tips or suggestions or just kind of wargaming what they're doing and they're right on track and, and don't need a lot. You know, the bottom 20%, a lot of times they don't want my help. Um, and in that case, you know, again, I'm, I'm there if they need me. And then, you know, the, the, there's the people in the middle who, you know, sometimes they need advice, some need full on programs, you know, it, it's really just kind of a, a mixture of, you know, all kinds of people. And I think that's the thing is, that, I mean, there are people. So, you know, it's one of those things. Anytime you're working with people, um, it, it's not always going to be perfect as far as what the programming looks like and, you know, what the needs are. And, and uh,
0: really, you're just trying to help serve them with, in whatever capacity that you can. We're talking with Dr. Jay Dawes, who is an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University, specializing in working with tactical individuals and first responders. You've mentioned some of the various ways that you are available and are a resource for individuals involved in this field. How does that integrate with the work that you do, if at all, with uh, a nutritional standing? Do you commonly uh, associate or work in conjunction with uh, a registered dietitian or somebody who can offer dietary recommendations?
1: Yeah, actually I do. And, you know, and, and that's one of the, the great things about now that I'm here at Oklahoma State, like I've got a, uh, a couple of colleagues in human sciences, uh, specifically Dr. Jill Joyce. Uh, she and I have been doing a lot of work together, you know, trying to look at dietary records of, uh, you know, law enforcement officers, firefighters, military personnel, Army ROTC and trying to, you know, kind of see one, like what, what's the culture, what's the climate, what's the environment, what are they doing? And then are there any low hanging fruit things, no pun intended on that, that we, that we can do that will help just move the needle a little bit to, you know, get them to, you know, to toward better health. And, and I think that's the big thing is like not trying to completely, you know, dominate or change everything and, you know, try and put people on special diets. Cause I mean, one, it's not practical and two, it's hard to sustain, but it's just trying to, move toward better health and wellness in the long run. So, yeah, for me, I've I've been very fortunate to have somebody that I work with that is an actual RD. Um, You know, in, in my position from a scope of practice standpoint, you know, I'm able to provide some real basic um, nutritional education and, you know, provide guidance on generally well-accepted practices, but to go in and actually uh, detail out a nutritional profile for somebody or, uh, you know, say, Hey, you know, 10 a.m. you need to have a turkey sandwich and, you know, uh, you know, carrot sticks. I can't do that. But, you know, Jill's in a position where she can. So, you know, having, having that person as an asset uh, and a colleague has really, really helped out. And I think that's, that's the one thing that has been great, especially moving toward, um, you know, this tactical space is there's a lot of people out there who are more than willing to help. And quite frankly, there's a lot of people out there that know a whole lot more than I do. And I think that's one of the things is, you know, it's, it's sometimes you gotta be pretty humble about what you know and what you don't know and use your network. And, you know, if, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably doing something wrong. (laughs) So I think that's the one thing that I'm probably about the only thing I'm very good at is recognizing people who are smarter than me and going out and reaching out to them and, and making sure that you know, again, I don't do a disservice to the people that I'm working with and, you know, that they are getting what they need. And, you know, honestly, most of the things that I do, like I bounce off several of my colleagues and, you know, get input and get advice to make sure that, you know, the things that we're we're promoting are actually going to be the best, best things for them.
0: I know one of the things that you've emphasized both in this interview and just when I've talked with you outside of the interview is the fact that there really is not a, uh, Homogeneous group of individuals. It really is heterogeneous, and there's, as you said, I think you described as like going into a department store. Yeah, I'm curious with with that in line. I mean, you've you've said you know you have to individualize programs to some extent, but I know one of the other things that we haven't really touch, touched on, but I think it's really important. Everybody thinks of strength and, t- and conditioning as helping to build and strengthen teams. And if you go into a collegiate or a high school setting, or unfortunately, probably now as young as five or six years old setting, you know, b- before a competition, they're going to be. Designing strength and conditioning programs for they so they peak at a specific date before the actual competition or before practice. you know there's go- there's gonna be somebody out there, somebody like you or somebody like me, leading the dynamic stretches, leading uh, a variety of other warm up activities. And yet the individuals that you work with don't have that advantage. They can't get called out on a fire call and say, oh, hold on a second, we've got uh, fifteen minutes to warm up before we get on the fire trucks. Right. Uh, You know, on the one hand, you think about uh, SWAT team members and things like that, but really across the board with first responders, they may not have time to warm up. How do you approach that and how do you approach the fact that the standardized type of periodized training that so many personal trainers and strength coaches like to adapt isn't really well suited for somebody who is working in a first responder or tactical field because they have to have a pretty significant level of fitness most of the time, if not all the time, they can't say, oh, no, no, today's not a good day for me to chase after you. I, I'm tapering. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really, a lot of it gets down to you got to be flexible. Um, you know, so over, over the last couple of years, you know, I've had some colleagues and, you know, that, that I've talked to and you know, we kind of like to deem it flexible periodization. Um, so bottom line, I, there, there is kind of an overriding plan, but the, the plan has to be adjustable. And you know, recognizing that you know most of these individuals don't have to be exceptional at anything at any one time, but they need to be extremely okay at everything. <laughs> so you know, they have got to you know have a decent amount of strength, a decent amount of muscular endurance, of cardiovascular fitness, um, you know, mobility, flexibility. Because you know, a- as you said before, you never know when something bad is going to happen, and you know, ideally, you know, everybody's, you know, warmed up and ready to go before, you know, that, you know, something bad occurs, but we know that's not the case. So, you know, one, one of the main things that we're just trying to do is approach it from a standpoint is like, if we build a bigger capacity and, you know, we improve your flexibility, your mobility, your, your overall strength, your, you know, cardiovascular endurance, you know, when you get called in that situation, that's not exactly perfect. Hopefully you have a greater capacity before you break. Um, and you know realistically that that's the best we can really do. Um, and and I hate it because you know, I had a good friend, you know, say it not too long. Ago, it was like, Yo, you know no matter how big you are, you're not gonna you know be bigger than a bullet. And, and that's a hard prospect too, because you know we we want to give people every opportunity to be successful, but you know there's 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 some things that we can't control and and that's tough, and that's that's really tough, especially for me, like you know, with, with the groups that I work with, I mean, we develop some pretty strong relationships and, you know, some of my best friends in the world now are law enforcement personnel and firefighters. And, you know, it, it's, it's tough because, you know, you know what you can do, you know what you can't do. And I think from my perspective, you know, you just give them every opportunity they can to be successful, but you know, in reality, it, it's not, in some ways it's not much different being a strength coach because, you know, when I was working with our, you know, men's and women's soccer team at the last university, all I can do is help them build the capacity and the physical, um, you know, uh, requirements that they need to be successful. And then after that, it's really up to them, you know, and and they've got to figure out how to transfer that into what they do because they're the experts in their area. And, you know, my, my job is to get them ready. Their job is to figure out how to use those new skill sets in their
0: environment. We're talking with Dr. Jay Dawes from Oklahoma state university. I think a, a final question to touch on that. I think a lot of listeners, especially if they're looking at either, potentially changing jobs or professions, or if we've got some students listening, is you are involved in the tactical field. And I know when you first started out in this field, you were a personal trainer, owned a personal training facility. For somebody who maybe is still mobile or looking for that right spot, what are some suggestions you can offer where they can gain insight and some education? So when a job comes up in this area, maybe not as a researcher, if they're just a bachelor's or master's, actually not just, if they have a bas- a bachelor's or a master's, they don't want to be in a teaching setting. They don't want to be in a research setting, but they want to work with these first responders and tactical athletes. How do they get the experience to be able to do that?
1: You know, I think probably one of the best ways is, is to try and link up with individuals who are already in that space that are working with them. Um, you know, the, the thing of, about it is, is I, I think within those communities, they got to know that you're in it for the right purposes and that you're actually there to serve them. Cause unfortunately, um, I've seen a lot of people try to enter into that space because it was a way that they could bolster their profile and not really do the right thing for the people that they're trying to serve. Um, and, and quite frankly, like these people are the best in the world at sniffing out people who don't have good intentions. So, you know, it, it's a really bad move to be somebody who doesn't have their best interest at heart and try and enter into that space. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the, the one thing is like, if you really want to work with those types of groups, one, you got to be genuine. Um, you know, always tell the truth. Um, a lot of times, regardless of whether that's popular or not. Um, and you know, to be diplomatic about it, you don't have to, you know, come up with you know, guns blazing, no pun intended, but, um, the, the really the best thing that you can do is like link up with people who are well-respected in that area and let them kind of help serve as a kind of a gateway to, to you know, introduce you to those folks and, and start working with them. Because, you know, a, a lot of times um, you know, if they don't know you, like you and trust you, they're not going to let you into their environment. Um, and, and, and frankly, that's smart on their part. Um, so, you know, if you can gain credibility via extension that somebody that trusts you, then that goes a long way.
0: Great information from Dr. Jay Dawes. Jay, I want to thank you for taking time from your busy schedule, talking a little bit about the work of somebody in academia, and more importantly, uh, highlighting and kind of explaining to people what it actually means when you work with uh, tactical athletes uh, across the variety of professions. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.